So you'll have to forgive both of us as we're halfway through here, but both of us are coming off of some sicknesses and neither one of us have really a voice. So we're really powering through this for you. And another thing that I wanted to bring up to continue rolling on here, opening day of baseball happened while I was overseas. And it happened so fast. I mean, we're already 20 games into the season already, but opening day is fascinating to me. I'm going to say something, and I don't know if this is true, but I'm going to make a statement. I think that baseball is the only professional sport in America that has a unique first game of the season feel to it. I don't think any other sport really has that, no matter how hard they try. When you say opening day, it means the same thing just about to every franchise in the league. Opening day is an experience. People want to go there. It's probably the best attended game for more than half of the franchises in Major League Baseball. And I always love opening day because it just, again, has this feel to it. Like there's something about going to a baseball stadium for the first time, the sounds and everything, the experience. It's not the same in any other sport. Going to an NFL game in week one versus week 10 It's the exact same experience. But opening day, there is a buzz in the in the stadium. And I don't know if you agree with that or not, but that's the way I feel about opening day. No, I agree. It's it's kind of an institution, right? There's a buzz. There's there's kind of that that hope for a new year. And, you know, it's kind of a signal, too, of spring being right here on the horizon and, and summer right around the corner. And I think everyone's excited to see maybe some new young players or new free agents or people that were traded for that are now a part of the ball club. There's just something so uniquely American about a baseball game. And then you add opening day and all the pomp and circumstance that comes along with that. And I, I don't know that it gets any better. I think that if you polled baseball fans and next to maybe the playoffs of the World Series, opening day is probably one of the best days to be at the ballpark. I mean, going to a ballpark is a true experience. Like opening day, the vendors are there for the first time. You get those smells of all the food. You have the mascots. You have all the memorabilia and everything. There's just a buzz to it that you're right. It is an institution to the point that there are so many traditions on opening day that I don't think people realize. Like the Cincinnati Reds play at home every year on opening day. And it's been a tradition for like 100 years or something like that. Those types of things don't really exist in other sports. I mean, we have traditions that are coming along now with the Super Bowl champion hosting the first game of the year. I'm not really sure how much of a reward that is, but it is what it is, right? I guess they get the Thursday night game out of the way. I don't know. I I just find it so interesting. And I think this year opening day had a different buzz to it because of all the pitch clock stuff. Now, I'm not sure if you've seen any of the preliminary stats, but there have been a couple of interesting things that have happened with the pitch clock. Number one, we've seen a sub two hour game. The Red Sox and Angels the other day played a one hour, 57 minute game. I'm not necessarily here for it. I think people are focusing a little bit too much on the time, but have you seen what the repercussion is of these shorter and shorter games is less beer sales? Yeah, I was wondering how the economics, right, of a day at the ballpark would play into this. And especially on the food side and stuff like that, the beer sales specifically. One little tidbit too, while it's fresh in my mind, I saw, I believe there there have actually been two to three times that the Cincinnati Reds have not opened at home. But the reason that that whole thing started was because back in the early 1900s, they were like the furthest south of all teams in Major League Baseball. So it was always warm enough to play on opening day and a, a small chance of it being postponed due to weather or whatever. And then they just kind of kept doing it. But back to the pitch clock, I, I have seen also a couple other interesting things. It happened in the Cubs-Dodgers game the other night. And I can't re- recall the specific player for the Cubs, but it was a former Dodger. He was coming, he was got like a curve 
curtain call or something like that by the Dodger fans and got a fucking pitch clock violation and uh, got a strike called on them or whatever, you know, like the, and you know, there've been a couple other instances. One I found interesting. I was watching a, a Cubs game. I think Cubs Brewers, it was the opening series of the year. There was a dribbler hit towards first base and pitcher had to run over to cover the bag, got there in time, stepped on the bag, kind of fell down, but you know, successfully recorded the out. And the moment they step back on the infield grass, the pitch clock starts. So this dude's got 20 seconds to get his ass back on the bump and throw a pitch and he's out of breath and everything else. So you only get X amount of mound visits, right? So the catcher took it upon himself to take a mound visit so that the pitcher could catch his breath in that moment. And, you know, what do you do if you don't have the pitch clock there? You know, that's, that's a spot where it, it definitely could be detrimental. And I know there've been, there's, we could probably talk about dozens of instances that have created unique, unique situations, but the short games are, are crazy. I think I'll say this watching at home, I'll take the shorter game all day, every day. But if I'm physically at the ballpark, I would like to take in that experience for as long as possible because it is very unique experience. You you, you kind of want to just like time doesn't exist. We're just here enjoying this game. And you know, a lot some of that will be lost. Yes and no, because I think what needs to happen is those lazy ass fans who say, oh, I can show up in the third inning or I can show up a half an hour late because we'll only be in the first inning or whatever. I think it just prioritizes getting to the game on time and wanting to be there. I know every game that I've been to, I've always wanted to be there for the first pitch and for the national anthem and everything because it's part of the experience. And even though baseball is a slower game and it doesn't have a timer, I don't necessarily want to miss anything when I'm watching live. When I'm watching on television, yeah, sure. I mean, Greg Maddox used to throw 83 pitch complete games that took an hour and 52 minutes or whatever. And that was just pure skill because he was better than everybody else. And I think that it is a sad commentary that we have to have a pitch clock in order to have any type of fast game. I think, though, the longer that it is in play, I think that we're going to see adaptations. I think we're going to see things iron itself out. I mean, I have to say, to be honest with you, there haven't been that many crazy stories about the pitch clock screwing over somebody that we saw in spring training, right? Some of the Max Scherzer stuff. Manny Machado, I think, did get called out or got a strike on him and he got thrown out for arguing said strike and it was on a pitch clock violation. That stuff's going to happen. Overall, though, I think you've seen offenses up. I think the games have been more interesting, even though they've been a little bit faster. And some of these repercussions like beer sales, and now they're moving beer, the end of beer sales from the seventh to the eighth inning. And some people are saying that that's worrisome or whatever. But you know what I have to say about that is if you're a responsible human being, you're going to do the right thing. And it doesn't matter when beer sales end. Don't be an idiot. Don't drink and drive. These are common things that we should all know. So I don't think it really matters. I don't think it's the responsibility of the ballparks to legislate who has what drink when because, okay, they stopped selling beer in the eighth inning, so that same person can go out to a bar and drink themselves silly and get into a car. It's not the ballpark's fault. But the advertising dollars and the commercial dollars and everything, they're the same commercial breaks, the same amount of time, but they're losing an hour or what has been traditionally so far, an hour of maybe post-game stuff or whatever. That stuff will iron itself out. We'll see that happen. Money will talk and it'll adapt. But so far, so good, I think. And I've just been pleased with it so far. No, I couldn't agree more. And I've tried to take in some more baseball this year for sure. I've, I've Up to this point, I certainly have. Not as much as I'd like to moving forward. Because, you know, there are some really exciting young players in the league. And, you know, the Cubs have a couple of them that I've been following a little bit. And, you know, and then, of course, you have the excitement of the freaking Rays starting undefeated, right? I mean, is and I, I'm assuming... 
you know, I, I know maybe when you put the notes together, they were, I'm assuming, is that, is it still intact? It's not intact, but they were 13 and 0. I think they're 13 and 2. They lost two straight. I think what's interesting about that is it ties into something you said earlier about hope. Baseball is unique in the fact that there are so many games that even if you lose on opening day, there's still a ton of hope because there's 161 games to come after it. But also with that, it's so unusual for a team to rip off the kind of win streak that the Rays started off the season as. And I think they either tied the record or broke the record for the best start to a season at 13-0. and But what's ironic about that is if we talk about this team in July, they could be middling near 500. That's how baseball is and that's how it works. But I think the fascinating part is they're a bottom five team in terms of salary. And they're the antithesis to the commanders in the NFL because they strive to maximize what they have and not spend a lot of money. Whereas you got the Dodgers and the Padres who are just flipping money out there, right? Making it rain. And the Rays were like, you know what? We're going to win and we're going to win 100 games on $65 million salary. There's something about the way that they run their organization that no other team can mimic. All the people that have been in the front office for the Rays have gone other places. They've not been able to get that success out there. It's just like the Belichick coaching tree. It just something doesn't work. It's the com- the combination of everything in there. And I just, I love that because the teams that are spending the money just hate the Rays. They absolutely hate the Rays. And then you got teams like the A's. I don't know if you saw this. It's not my stat of the week, but I think 11 AAA teams outdrew the A's attendance on opening day. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I tell you what, though, there's something about, about the A's I like. I don't I mean, that stadium's a dump. Obviously, they don't do very well from a fan base perspective, but they've had some, uh, some good runs. They put together some good teams. I actually watched Moneyball over the weekend. Uh, this past week, it's one of my favorite sports movies, and it's so it's fascinating. And maybe this is some of what these front office folks from the Rays are facing, because even in that movie, they have what they believe is the recipe, but they struggle early on because they can't get buy in from the manager or or even the players into what they're trying to do. So uh, perhaps that happens places. You know, if you're not playing, if you're not putting the team on the field and playing them in the way they're designed to be played, you're not going to see the results. But I also wonder, though, if the concept of Moneyball, is it, has the game caught up with it in some way? Or is everyone else around the league caught up to the the analytics where it's not the advantage that it maybe was early on when no one else was putting their teams together with data? Yeah, I think Moneyball has become the norm now. And it's not even Moneyball, right? The A's were trying to win in the margins. They were trying to look at analytics and look at different intangibles, I guess, or skill sets that other teams weren't looking for. But now I'm not sure how much that means because obviously everybody is working the count. But then you got these high strikeout guys and high high risk, high reward guys like Joey Gallo, who all they do is hit home runs or they strike out. They don't really do anything else. And so I don't know where those guys fit into it. But I think with the changes in banning the shift and the pitch clock, trying to make balls in play more prevalent the way that they used to be, I think that you're going to see again a shift in the paradigm of what teams are going to look for. And I think the Rays are just trying to stay ahead of that curve by not breaking the bank because they're really, they can't afford it. Tropicana Field is one of the worst stadiums in the league. Actually, you and I both talked about possibly doing a tour with our with our sons of ballparks, right? And I could I would probably go would I would probably go to some stadiums two or three times before I would ever visit Tropicana Field or the Coliseum out in Oakland. By the time we actually get to doing this tour, the A's are not going to be in Oakland. They're going to be somewhere else. And Salt Lake City has actually been the city that has been talked about for expansion. That's fascinating. No, I was actually kind of looking into something about that uh, earlier today. Just I, 
different stadiums and stuff. Now, you say you wouldn't want to go. I would almost like to go to these places, though, just to say that I went, right? The Trop is so unique. I, I have heard it's a real pain in the ass to get get to and from based off where it's at. What is so unique about Travaganda Field? Have you ever watched a game there? Oh, I know, but I'm, that's what I'm saying. It's fucking like no, there's nothing else like it. I mean, there isn't. It's a small dome stadium. They hit balls that hit the fucking roof, right? I mean, it's tight. It's just weird. It, it, it's so strange and quirky that I kind of love it, man. And like now the Coliseum, there's really nothing aesthetically pleasing about it. it it's, it's in Oakland. I, I'm not as intrigued by it, but I, for some reason, I am a little, I'm a little into the green and yellow color scheme, though. And the white shoes, come on, man. Give me that all day long with the A's. I'm not going to dispute that. I do like the A's uniforms a lot. I do like their color. Their, their whites are just really crisp, but the Coliseum is funny because it's a it's a relic of the past when football stadiums and baseball stadiums used to coexist and foul ground at the at the Coliseum is ridiculous. It's like a parking lot. Like if you oh, yeah. if you hit a foul ball, you're basically out. Just walk back to the dugout. Like it's it's pointless to sit there and be like, oh, I hope he doesn't catch it. But I would love to do the ballpark thing. But it's funny because ballparks have evolved over time too. When I think of ballparks that I love the most, I love the vintage ones. I'll always love Fenway Park. It will is my first love and it will be my only love forever. I do want to see Wrigley Field because I think stadiums like that that are that old, they're going to be a thing of the past. They're, stadiums are not going to be allowed to exist that long because we're building bigger and better all the time to the point that the Braves just got rid of Turner Field a couple of years ago and that was only built in 1995. So there's not going to be that many stadiums around, but another stadium I think that's very underrated is Camden Yards. It's a fantastic stadium and I think that that one will be allowed to be the next Yankee Stadium, or excuse me, the next Fenway Park or Wrigley Field. And I think it will be allowed to to stay there as long as they take care of it because I think it was built perfectly and it's a wonderful ballpark. I've heard great things about Camden Yards. Uh, absolutely. I mean, just it's it's a newer, obviously not new, newer park with an old feel. And and I think that's really cool. And what's you mentioned, um, Turner Field and the Braves. Man, I remember I was coming home from Disney World with my family, driving into Atlanta, Georgia, and we drove by the old Fulton County Stadium like two hours before they imploded it. And so I, I remember, like, I think Turner Field might be the first stadium that was built and then they moved out of it in my lifetime. You know, like the beginning and the end, its whole lifespan fits within my lifetime. And, you know, as far as, you know, they moved on to a new place. And, yeah, you're right. I think we're going to see more of that stuff. I've been there. It's been a while since I've been to Wrigley. I haven't been there since they've done all the new updates and stuff. But no, it's a it's a cool place to go. And I tell you what, Bush Stadium, the new Bush Stadium in St. Louis, is a really neat ballpark. Uh, they've really done a nice job with that. And I I think what they've done there and what you're seeing them try to do other places is where in the past they wanted to build these stadiums sort of away from the city center a little bit so that they could have more parking or whatever. They've, they've kind of brought the ballparks back into the downtown areas of these places and kind of made the, kind of like the old stadiums, like like Fenway is and like Wrigley is, where they've, they've wanted to make them part of the neighborhood and stuff like that. And I think that you, you've kind of seen that with what they've done. And you know, Atlanta, when they built their new stadium, they basically, I mean, it exists with the entire like complex surrounded of shops and restaurants and stuff like that. And it's it's a whole experience. I think my hang up with stadiums nowadays is they don't have enough of the old school feel. And that's why Camden Yards is the perfect hybrid of both of those. But stadiums now, they don't have as much character to me. Like when I watch games on some of the brand new stadiums, I don't get the same feeling. Like when I would turn on a Braves game because Bra the Braves were on TBS. They were a nationally syndicated TV, uh, team. 
And you knew Fulton County Stadium. Now, Fulton County Stadium was also built in the era of those cookie cutter stadiums when you had like three rivers, Riverfront, the Vet, right? All those, even Bush Stadium, old Bush Stadium was like that too, where they were all just plop a circle with a diamond in the middle of it and call it a day, right? Zero character to them whatsoever, except they started to have character to them. You knew Fulton County Stadium from the background. And I don't really get that same feel. Like when you see Wrigley Field with the brick, you see that. Nats Park doesn't really have a lot of character to it. Like, I don't find it to be any different than some other ballparks that I've been to. But when they take the time to give it a unique sort of look, Petco Park in San Diego, nobody goes to Padres games, but it does have a unique feel because there's the building that's there, right? It's an old building that they built the ballpark around. Those are nice little character traits that I think stadiums have to have. One I really want to go to is Pittsburgh. I've heard that PNC is a wonderful, wonderful place to see a, a ball game. It's just the team perennially stinks. Yeah, no, absolutely. As a Cubs fan, I can relate to that. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, have a unique looks to them. And there, there are some out there that are pretty sterile in their appearance. But I mean, some of the, I mean, I say newer, but like used to be Miller Park in Milwaukee. I don't know. It's like American Family Park or something now. It's got a unique look to it. Um, it it's, but it was the first stadium, I think, or one of the first ones with the retractable roofs on it. So it's kind of unique looking for that. The stadium in Houston they built used to be Minute Maid Park. I'm sure it's something different now with the train and the outfield and all that and the weird little hill oh, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I, they've definitely made some attempts to add some character to some of these places. But there are there's definitely a few out there that are that are kind of uh, sterile for sure. Now, a place that has a ton of character that will always be known and will always have a tradition is Augusta National for the Masters. So the Masters just wrapped up last weekend. I believe it wrapped up on Easter Sunday. That was the first Sunday that I was back. The Masters is something that's appointment television for me. And I know we say that a lot, like I love the NCAA tournament, but the Masters is a different feel. And golf in general, I love to watch. I mean, it's very enjoyable. It's very peaceful for me to watch. But the Masters is an institution. Augusta National, to me, has the same, if not more, gravitas than some of these stadiums that we know for football or baseball or whatever. It's on my sports bucket list of places that I would like to go, not just to watch the golf, but just to walk the grounds. To me, it feels that sacred. And I always look forward to the Masters because there's it's a different feel. Whether you watch golf or not, I think the Masters moves the needle. People know what it is because, again, it's like Madison Square Garden. Augusta National speaks for itself, and it is the star. And over that weekend, we saw John Rahm, who is an excellent golfer, U.S. Open champion, wins the Masters and I think cements himself as one of this generation's best golfers. And he's, his future is certainly bright. I always say this. If you're a golfer and you're a professional and you're only going to win one major in your lifetime and it's the Masters, you're set for life. And there's unique traditions. Everything about the Masters just is awesome. I love it. And I just love watching it. I love taking it in. And I assume you feel the same way. Oh, I absolutely do. And it took me a while. I mean, probably only the last, we'll call it 10 years of my life, have I really been interested in golf and and tried to play more golf. It didn't take long. I'm a traditionalist, as you know. I love kind of the old history and things like that. And you get that by the truckload with the Masters. And I was immediately drawn to it. And, you know, I'm the type of person when something sort of intrigues me, I go down the rabbit hole and start looking up things about it. And you just start hearing all the great stories. And, you know, you have Ray's Creek and Amen Corner and and all these fascinating spots on the course and, uh, you know, the clubhouse. And, you know, I think the clubhouse up in the upper floor has like a lodging area where the amateurs stay and stuff like that, which is super unique. And, 
I believe Bobby Jones, right, was the uh, the one who built it or designed it originally. He was the architect of Augusta National. And his I think his favorite course at the time was the old course at St. Andrews. And I think he built that as like his homage to the old course. And, you know, and I hear people, I know a couple people that have had the opportunity to go and I've talked to them and, and they always talk about it on TV during the Masters that TV doesn't do it justice in terms of the terrain there. I mean, they said that the, you know, you can't even begin to imagine like the elevation changes that exist there that you don't capture on TV. And and I watched a video of a guy, a golf guy that I kind of follow. And he talked about, I mean, this guy's in shape, he's fit. And they went out and walked the course like during one of the practice rounds. And he's like, we had to stop like walking up the hill on whatever hole because like to catch our breath, you know, I mean, it's just, it's crazy, which kind of leads into like, you know, Tiger having to withdraw and everything else. And he said, I saw an interview after like day one where they asked him, you know, what, what are you struggling with? He's like walking. I mean, he said that was his, his biggest problem was having to walk around the golf course. And I just got to imagine on a course like that. But at the same time, like you said, just to be on those grounds and be out there in between those giant Georgia pines and, you know, you've got, you know, the, azale- the azaleas, my goodness, and all that stuff. And it's just, uh, it's awesome. The grounds crew is underpaid. It's a beautiful, beautiful course. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. You're right, though. The course is hard. And I think the fact is, or the fact of that they play there every single year, and yet the same people play it over and over and over again. And for lack of a better term, no pun intended, nobody has mastered that course. And even Tiger, in his heyday, they had to make it harder for him, which made it exponentially harder for everybody else. Even Tiger didn't win every year. That's what's amazing about it. Whatever they do to it, the whole placements on Sunday, some of them are just downright devilish. Then they know it too. Like, I feel like if you're the guy who cuts the holes out for Sunday at the Masters, you just know, like, you, you've you got it. You've, you are holding it over them. Some of those hole placements are amazing. But I think what it comes down to and what I find the most fascinating is the difference between Thursday and Friday and the weekend. And guys who come out guns blazing on Saturday or Thursday and Friday, they falter over the weekend. Once you change over to the weekend, something about that course changes. It's almost like the course knows that it needs or that you need to be at your most mental fit. It's not even just the physical aspect of it. And I think what I saw over the course of Sunday was John Rahm played consistent golf, did everything he had to do, didn't take an unnecessary risk, and Brooks Kepka just, even though... He had a historic, historic first two days. I don't know if you saw that stat that he was only the fourth player ever to have consecutive rounds of 67 or under at Augusta National and then couldn't bring it home because that's how hard that course is. And that's what it does to you. And John Rahm did everything he was supposed to. He showed me what it, it means to be a champion. And the Masters has one of the coolest championship ceremonies ever. Cleve asked us about that one time. For me, it's the Stanley Cup, and then it's the Green Jacket. I mean, that has got goosebumps every time. Now, the Green Jacket is fantastic. And, you know, one thing, too, that they had to battle over the weekend was the weather, man. The rain was just terrible. But I tell you what, though, Brooks Kepka could not use that as an excuse because for most of the weekend, he got the better of it on the, the, the weather side of things when he was playing. I still knew, though. I had a feeling. I knew he was going to piss it away. I just didn't think he was going to be able to sustain that long, especially when the pressure ratcheted up on Sunday. That was cool. John Rahm, man, he's always near the top, one of the best golfers in the world. And to see him get it done was great. And that's one I really think he needed, right? That's a notch in his belt that he needed to get to really, uh, like you said, cement himself as one of the best in the game, Uh, not just in this era, but forever, historically. 
I did see something interesting, two different little facets to this debate. One is how close to the pen, how close to the green would you have to start to shoot par at Augusta? The other one was how close to the pen would you have to start to win the Masters? I'm like, I'd have to be on the green. And that's just to give me a fighting chance. I'd have to start on the fucking green for sure to even make the cut. (laughs) I'd have to start on the green. No doubt about it. It would never happen. Like it would just would not happen because putting, I don't think people realize, maybe they do. Maybe if you're a golf fan, again, call the show, give me your opinion, tell me how full of crap I am. But when these golfers make these like 12 to 15 foot putts for par, like saving par, and they just make it and walk off and we're like, all right, he did what he had to do. And I'm like, that's a hard putt. Like that's a really hard putt to make with all that pressure and they just go up there and do it. And just because I'm on the green does not guarantee anything for me. Like how far away am I? If I'm a hundred feet away, I'm definitely getting a six on that hole. There's no way I'm getting anywhere close because those long putts are ridiculous. I don't think I could do it. I'll be honest. I don't think I could. Oh, I I don't believe I could either. I'm just saying to have even a chance, I'd have, I'd have to be on the green. Uh, Like you said, if it's one of those giant putts and maybe there's a bunker or something, if you overhit it or whatever, I mean, yeah, game over, buddy, game over for sure. And it's impressive. You know, I've watched a couple of different things. I I came across a video of uh, Phil Mickelson talking about his pre-shot like routine and all the shit he thinks about in his head. I mean, he's going on about like what time of day it is, what's the humidity, what direction is the grain of the grass going in relation to the ball. I mean, just all this wild shit. And, you know, is there any moisture? Is there moisture on the club head? If so, there's going to be a barrier between the club head and the ball that's going to impact the spin and the release and all this other shit. And he's like, you know, I have two different swings with each club, you know, and there's a 10, 10 yard difference between the two and I can choke down and blah, blah, blah. I mean, just, it's just like, whole. and he processes all this stuff in a minute, right? To think of, and I'm like, fuck, I'm just trying to hit the fucking thing for one. Like if I make contact, that we're off to a good start. And then if I can hit it and it goes straight, I'm not going to get too many complaints out of me, man, if I can hit it straight. I don't care how far it goes. No, but I watch golf for that exact reason. I don't know if I've said this on the show before, but I watch golf because I love watching people do something that I know I'll never be good at. And golf is probably the only thing in my life that I've tried to be good at and just not been good at. And it's not enjoyable for me. I like being on the course, the smells of the course, the whole experience of being on the course is awesome as long as I'm riding in the cart and I don't actually have to swing the club because I lose my mind. I I lose my fucking mind. Like, I I don't know how people retire playing golf because I've never been good at it. And I, no matter what I do, no matter what I do, I will, this show will be purchased by Spotify before I ever figure out how to be a good, a decent golfer let alone a good golfer. Golf is cruel in this way is it gives you hope, right? You you could accidentally, I mean, even if it's once around, you accidentally run into one because you just happen to put the club in the right spot at the right time and just luck your way into a great shot. And you're like, ah, I'm figuring this out. I got this. And then the next one, you know, you freaking in the drink, chunk it or whatever else. Yeah, I mean, no, I, I enjoy being out there playing. I try not to take it too seriously. I'm not very good either. It's just, being out enjoying the nice weather. Most golf courses are absolutely beautiful and well-maintained and it's just a nice place to hang out. And you have a couple cold ones while you're out there and you have a good time with a couple of friends. You know what's interesting though? And I was thinking about this earlier with baseball is how baseball players, think about Ken Griffey Jr. We recognize swings from baseball players all the time, right? Like we can think about batting stances and so forth and every player sort of has their unique way of playing. 
But yet golf doesn't really have that. Like, I don't ever think, ooh, Tiger's swing was just so wonderful. And maybe there are some players that stand out. I know a lot of people say Fred Couples has one of the best swings in golf. But I never watch these guys and think, oh, I can see the differences. And But yet we grew up watching baseball players and knowing the difference, like how a guy stands and how he swings. Like Ken Griffey Jr.'s swing was different than everybody else's swing, right? And isn't it interesting how, and what's more speaks to the fact that golf is so precise, that you have to be that technical in there. Like your hips have to be in the right place. Your wrist has to be in the right place. All just to hit the damn ball straight. And that's not including all the shit that Phil Mickelson is talking about. Which, by the way, I looked on the leaderboard on Sunday and I was like, Phil? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he got himself in there, man. And uh, he's funny. I love hearing like the little sound bites of him talking on the course and talking to people. I think it's hilarious. But you're right. Yeah, golf's very precise. It's hard to to see much of a difference from one player to the next. I mean, I know a couple of years ago, the big thing was Bryson DeChambeau being, you know, the big hitter and just the intensity with which he would swing the club. And then, you know, his putting style was unique. And yeah, I think you see some unique putting styles and stuff, but when it comes to just their regular old golf swings, yeah, it's hard to decipher between, uh, from one to the next. And I remember as a kid, going back to the baseball swings, the one thing I remember emulating all the time as a kid growing up was all the different batting stances. Yes. Right. All the unique batting stances. They seem to be all over the place. You know, you had the Andre Scalaraga. It was like the first guy with the real open stance and Craig Council, who basically held his bat up to the moon and, and all these different guys. Julio Franco, guys like that. He would hold the bat up over his head like that. Jeff Bagwell practically took a yes. shit while he was up at the plate. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like there are just unique guys. And but you mentioned Bryson DeChambeau and I think he's a douchebag. And I kind of also think Brooks Kepka's a douchebag. And and I don't know why, but it's funny because those two guys hated each other. And yet I'm like, it's, you hate each other because you're basically the same guy. But Brooks Kepka basically was complaining that slow play was happening on Sunday. And I'm like, and how come John Rahm was 12 under? Like, I, I can't with that stuff. And I, I know that, you know, you're allowed to say those things. And I think he wasn't taking anything away from John Rahm, but... Whenever guys do that, and he does it a lot, Brooks Kepka actually does a lot. And I think the more that it happens, that's why I started souring on the guy. It's like, come on, man. Like, I get it. But also, there's a lot of other people who are affected by it who didn't have any friggin' problem on Sunday. Like, if the play was so slow, why did John Rahm play the crap out of that course and beat the crap out of you? You know what I mean? Like, that's just, I, I don't know. I, that kind of stuff, it bothers me because it takes away from the prestige of the entire thing. Like, clearly you're not a Masters champion, or you're not capable of being a Masters champion if that's what you're going to complain about. Yeah, I feel like he does make a lot of excuses. Uh, he's one of those types, and I, I, I don't know, maybe I, I don't recall, but I don't remember hearing Tiger make a lot of excuses. I mean, if anything, he's complaining about himself, his own game. He's very critical of how he played personally, and you know, I don't think he was ever complaining about slow play or any of the elements outside of his control. Yeah. It, it does come kind of come across a little bit as a sore loser. But at the same time, I do think that Patrick Cantlay, who was in the group ahead of them, is notorious for slow play. But my understanding is they were backed up too, to the group ahead of them. So, and that's usually how it is on the golf course. You, you know, you try not to get mad at the group ahead of you because they're usually slowed down by whoever's in front of them and so on and so forth. I can, I can tell you what, though, personally, I hate hate people playing at my ass on the golf course. Like, I'll, I'll let them play through. Go ahead, man. Like, play through. I'm the same way. It, it bothers me. And I'll tell you what, 
I'm a big etiquette on the golf course guy. I caddied. That was my first job. I was 11 and I caddied at the local country club. Rhode Island country club was local. It was like 20 minutes away. But my point being is I was the poor kid at the rich country club caddying. And I learned a lot about etiquette and how to do things and things you do and do not do on the golf course. And I hate it when I play with people who don't respect that. I never yell at them or anything, but it bothers me. Like I judge them as people when they drive their cart on the green. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? That's come on. Have you ever, I know I've never seen someone drive their cart. Oh, on the I green. Like I would lose my fucking mind and I'm not like a golf connoisseur by any means. Like, Oh my goodness. Yeah. No, you don't drive your fucking car on the green. I don't care how shitty of a golf course it is. Like you don't drive your car on the green. We got yelled at one time. I was at a, with a buddy at a country club and we were, we fucking parked the cart 10 feet off the green, like the side of the green. We were in like the second cut. And this old man was losing his shit because of how close to the green we were. You know, I'm like, and there weren't signs. It's not, we weren't anywhere where it was like indicated, like no carts here or whatever. I mean, I, I didn't think we were in a bad place. But so I got to know them. What are, what are some of your biggest pet peeves on the golf course? Oh, you hit into me? The ball's coming back at you. Definitely happens. Or I throw your ball into the nearest woods and you won't be able to get it back. If you step in my line, that really bothers me. And if you don't take the pin out, like there's people who will putt and the pin is still in. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like 10 the pin, what are you, you know, like that's just the thing, right? And just talking, I mean, talking happens, right? If you're out with buddies, things happen, but it's just general disrespect of, I guess, the rules of golf and the, the way that you're supposed to act. Like there's an etiquette at a golf course. It's not like going to the bar, like you can go there and, and drink and so forth, but respect the golf course, not replacing divots, things like that just generally not taking care of the course. And I just, it, it bothers me because as a caddy, you were responsible for doing all that. And you replaced divots and you made sure that things were where they were supposed to be. You made sure that you weren't anybody's line. You weren't standing in, you know, they weren't standing so their, your shadow was there and all that. And the driving of the cart, people drive it like assholes. It really, really, really bugs me. Like I just want them to drive into the damn pond. Yeah, I think those are all fair criticisms, honestly. Those are things that, I think you go to a course, one thing as a just a casual golfer, I think you accept re the responsibility that you have to take care of the course, to, like you said, replace your divots, don't drive on the fucking greens, don't trash the tee box, just just little basic things. Don't throw your trash on the ground. You know, if you got garbage, put it in a fucking trash can. Rake the sand traps, for Christ's sake. Rake the sand traps, yeah. Yeah, just all that stuff. I'm totally with you on that, man, like 100%. I don't think that that's above and beyond by any means. I think that's just common courtesy. But that's a general commentary on society today that common courtesy and thinking about somebody else is just, it's not part of where we are. See what you've done, man. Like I've been gone. I have no voice. You're getting me fired up. I swear you do this on purpose because I know you like it when I get out of my, you know, out of my little cocoon of positivity. I'm not, I'm not here for it. You know, we we have to... <laughs> I'm gaslighting the Iceman. Let's go. You're yes, you're you're gaslighting me. I I I missed you, but not quite that much. You got to tone it down a little bit. I think I think we need a little bit of positivity.
It's been a while, but of the week, OTW, where we like to get a little personal, have a little bit of fun, and we always start with Iceman Stat of the Week. Normally, when we come off of a hiatus, I like to give you a plethora or a number equal to how many weeks that we've missed, but I just don't feel like it today. So, Coach, I have two stats for you. As always, are you ready? Yes, sir, I am. I cannot wait. So this one I think you're going to find fascinating, and you're familiar with Thursday Night Football, are you not, sir? I am indeed. Big fan, as you know. As I know. So this is a great stat. The Women's College Basketball National Championship game, the ratings for that game, they outdrew every single Thursday night football game during the 2022 season. Wow, really? I mean, good for them. That's awesome. Is that more of a testament to women's basketball or an indictment on Thursday night football? That depends on how you want to look at it. I mean, the NFL usually draws very well, no matter whether the matchup is good or bad. I think it probably speaks to the oversaturation of the NFL on Thursday nights, but I also think that it speaks to the fact that I mentioned earlier, they gave the women's game the proper treatment and people flocked toward it. And also when you have personalities and characters, people are going to tune in. Kim Mulkey, Angel Reese, Caitlin Clark, people want to see that shit and they tuned in. And I just love that because I always shit on Thursday night football and the women's college basketball final outdrew every single one of them this year. I think that that's terrific. That's fantastic. Put me in the camp of it is a testament to women's basketball for sure. Let's do that. Mark it down. That is the way that it is. So this second one is not really a stat, but it is a testament to how crazy baseball is. So there is a minor league team. I do not know who the affiliate is, but they are the Rocket City Trash Pandas. And actually, it's a perfect name for what happened. So in a game while I was gone, they entered the final inning with a 3 nothing lead and a no-hitter intact. Well, they ended up losing the game 7-5, to and they also still had a no-hitter. What? Would you like to know how that happened? Yes. So, this is how the inning went. A walk, a walk, a put-out, a walk, a strikeout, a walk, an error, a pitching change, hit-by-pitch, 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 walk, wild pitch, walk, strikeout. Holy shit. Yes, they gave up seven runs and not one hit. That's crazy. So did anyone get ran when they hit three people in a row? No, actually, that guy came in. He hit three batters in a row after coming into the game. There was not another pitching change after that. I mean, he surely didn't do it on. He surely didn't do it on purpose. No. This has got Is this like single A, like low A? I mean, do you know independent? I actually think it might be triple A. Double A or triple A. It was I saw the box score and I tried to think in my head how that could possibly happen. And I did a little deep dive into it and I saw that stat line and I was like, that is insane. It was like five walks, three hit by pitch or four hit by pitch and an error. Where's Rocket? Where's Rocket City? Do you know? I do not know. We'll have to look this up. Anybody listening from Rocket City, please let us know if you're at the game or let us know where Rocket City is in general. But I think the fact that they're called the Trash Pandas certainly fits after that performance. Nailed it. Absolutely nailed it. Boy, just so, so bad. But also only baseball could provide something like that. No other sport could do that. No, not at all. I mean, that's like that'd be the equivalent of like a crazy comeback in football where onside kick and then like one of them crazy lateral situations. It actually turns out, you know, turns into points being scored and whatever. Then another onside kick and the same thing happens again. I don't know. You're right.
And that sound means it's the return of Coach's Pick of the Week. Coach, the last time you made a pick of the week, the Sweet 16 was still a thing, and you picked Sparty over Kansas State. Unfortunately, that did not work out for you, and you are back to a paltry 2-2-500. Two two I guess that's where you like to live in mediocrity. But guess what? We are back, and you get to make another pick of the week. So please bless everybody in Ice Time Nation with another pick. Hear ye, hear ye. Welcome to the most average picks that you could ever find here on Coach's Pick of the Week. This week, we might call it the pick of the month moving forward. We'll see. This week, we take it to the ice. The NHL playoffs are getting ready to begin. This is one of the best championships in sports. As we talked about earlier, Lord Stanley's Cup is to be won. I am going with, I'm taking a whole series winner here. I'm going with the upset in round one. I'm taking the Winnipeg Jets over the Vegas Golden Knights, the number eight seed over the number one seed in the first round of the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs. The Jets of Winnipeg over the Golden Knights of Vegas in Lord Stanley Cup's first round of the NHL playoffs, coach. It's great to say this again. So let it be written. So let it be done. And that means we have come to the end of the episode, Coach. It's great to be back, but I think that we have a little bit of business to take care of before we get out of here. A little bit of an announcement. Are you ready to announce to the masses some big changes that we have to the Iceman and Coach paradigm? Yeah, I think we got some exciting stuff coming up. I know you and I have been talking about this stuff for weeks. It's time to unleash it on the listeners. It is. Coach and I have been talking for a while about the fact that we feel as if we are letting a little bit too much meat sit on the bone in the sporting world. And while we love to talk, we don't have enough time every single week to talk about everything that we could talk about or everything that maybe you are interested in. And so the coach and I want to be able to bring some more content to you, but not necessarily from us. We want to bring in some other people to give you a little bit more insight and expertise into some of the sports that maybe either we don't get to or that maybe you want to know a little bit more about. So moving forward throughout the month of April and beyond, we are creating what we are calling INC Sports. And if you're watching on YouTube right now, you will see that logo up in the corner of the screen. And by doing this, we are branching off from the main Iceman and Coach show, and we are making sub-shows that will happen less frequently that are going to give you a little bit more of that nuanced and niche content that you're looking for. And to start out, we have five different ideas that we are going to bring to the table. And over the course of time, we are going to bring in more people and more voices, different voices and more topics. But right now, we are going to start an NBA-specific show called Basketball U, and we're going to bring in Matt Humphreys, who came on here probably about a month and a half ago to talk NBA. We are going to have our man from Payne Productions, Ryan Leskis, join me to talk about some professional wrestling, and that is going to be called The Free Bird Rules. And then we're also going to have Cleve, who was on the show, gosh, what, like two months ago? He is our boxing aficionado. He is a historian of boxing, and he has always wanted to talk about it. And we're going to be calling that The Cornerman, which we're going to be bringing to you probably once a month. Coach is going to be taking on some different projects about amateur wrestling, about the Bradley Braves, 
And honestly, I think the sky is the limit on this. And we're going to be rolling out these things as we see fit and just giving you more of a menu of content to go to, but without diluting the main brand that is Iceman and Coach. So every single week, you'll always be able to get the same commentary from us, the same talk, but you're now going to be able to hear us in different places and also hear some other voices of people that maybe you haven't heard before on sports that maybe you're interested in. So definitely take a look at that and make sure that if you're interested, that you follow each and every one of those or as many of those shows as you would like, because we're just going to keep bringing you that content. And I'm, I'm excited, man. I think that this is a great direction for us. I think it's a great direction for the show and the network. And it's going to be really, really fun to put all this together over time. No, I think it's great. It's really exciting. And it gives us an opportunity to dive more into some of these niche things that you mentioned. And, you know, when you come here to the main Iceman and Coach show, we're sort of the front the front of the sports page here. You're going to get the big headlines, the big stories in the world of sports. As I like to say, the every fan perspective on a lot of these different items. And we do miss out on some of the nuance or maybe unique, more statistical breakdowns of some of these different sports where you can, you can get that on some of these sub shows, which is going to be awesome. And then, like you mentioned, a few of the sports that we really are just going to graze by here, maybe not talk about at all, like boxing or amateur wrestling. Um, it gives me an opportunity to ramble on even more about things like Bradley basketball and stuff like that too. And we, we don't get into a ton of nuanced NBA uh, conversation. So I think it'd be good to bring in an expert like Matt and uh, school everyone on all things NBA. So I cannot wait. I'm looking forward to it. And like you said, the sky is the limit. So many possibilities. Uh, we've even we mentioned some rugby talk even somewhere down the line, maybe bringing in our friends from Tallboy Radio for some more across the pond discussions. So more and more to come. And we're really excited about it. I know that. Yes, the sky is the limit here and there is no limit to who we can bring in or when we can bring them in. And I think that's the beauty of it. So we're starting with what we think is interesting now and what we have people who want to contribute to what we're doing. But just look out, INC Sports is going to grow as we go along in this year. And it's amazing, man, because we started this show together as Iceman and Coach in October and what we have built so far. It makes me very, very proud. And I'm definitely looking forward to the next portion of this journey with you and with everybody in Ice Time Nation for sure, because the show is for them. It's not for us. But before we get you out of here, as always, the administrative stuff, please support the Pub Time Podcast anywhere that you find your podcast. He and Ryan actually... You guys recorded live the last time, and I think that was a really, really cool thing. It's what you used to do. It kind of had that old school vibe. So please support the Pub Time Podcast and everything they're doing over there. If you are watching on YouTube, don't forget to hit like and subscribe and all that good stuff. I like to put out some content and video a couple days after the audio. If you're listening on Apple and Spotify, don't forget to hit follow. Give us a rating. It means the world to us. If you want to find us on social media, Instagram and Twitter at Iceman and Coach is the place to find that. Don't forget, if you have a hot take, call the show. Area code 703-718-6314 is the telephone number to do that. Leave us a message. Let us know. Hey, you never know. If it's a good enough take, maybe we'll have you on the show. And please do not forget to visit the Matty Ice Media Network for all the other podcasts that we have, like Fire Footwear, The Manual, and Political Football. Coach, any parting words before we get out of here? No, just happy to be back. Knock the rust off a little bit. It had been a while, and we're going to build a little bit of momentum here going into the spring and summer. I cannot wait. Glad to be back, buddy, and looking forward to next week. Absolutely. I'm happy to be back. I want to thank everybody for tuning in this week. Thank you for listening and spending a little bit of time out of your week with us. I hope this finds you well. I hope this finds you safe. And from everybody here at Iceman and Coach, this is Iceman and Coach.
The opinions and viewpoints expressed on the Iceman and Coach Sports Show are those of Matt Freights, Brad Powell, and their guests, and not necessarily those of the Matty Ice Media Network. The Iceman and Coach Sports Show is exclusively owned by Matt Freights and Brad Powell and is brought to you by the Matty Ice Media Network.